Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Lenny Mendoza, and I'm excited to be here moderating today's program. I'm particularly delighted to be joined by my friend, Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America, and author of the new book, Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work, and Politics. There's no debate that Americans today face a deeply divided nation and political dysfunction, as we know. But throughout the work she does, Anne-Marie focuses on what unites us rather than what divides us. Renewal seeks to answer a pressing question, how can we face the past and simultaneously envision a new future? We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want you to ask your questions too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. And several times during the program, the screen will come up to tell you how you can click and virtually purchase Anne-Marie's new book, which will benefit both a local bookstore, the Commonwealth Club, and Anne-Marie's great work. So Anne-Marie Slaughter, thanks for joining us. Oh, Lenny, it's such a pleasure to be in conversation with you and particularly at the Commonwealth Club. Well, it's great to see you virtually and look forward to being in, pres- in person one of these days, either in your offices at New America in Washington, D.C., or sometime home here soon in San Francisco. But at least we can do this virtually. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, uh, Anne-Marie, you have a wide range of topics that you've written on, have academic and personal experience in, and have written several books on on those kinds of topics, everything from Uh, international security issues, to the role of networks, to the role of women in today's economy. Um, Why this book and why now? So this book is definitely the hardest book I've ever written. It's also the shortest. So for the old adage, it's harder to write short. I think that, that there's something in that. But it was the hardest because it is deeply personal uh, and passionately national. Uh, and it, it, I felt that I wanted to write it because we are at such a pass nationally. Uh, we are at a period of national crisis, of national trauma in so many ways. And I went through a, a, a personal and professional crisis. And as I w- was coming out of that and learning really profound lessons and lessons about myself and about looking backwards and and then forwards at the same time and about leadership, I felt that there were things in my own experience that could be useful to others, other leaders certainly, but, but anyone who's gone through a crisis. And that at least by analogy, because obviously a person doesn't represent the nation, but at least by analogy could offer us a way forward uh, nationally as well. And, you know, I, I run New America. I care deeply about this country. And it was my sort of offering uh, to see how I could contribute to that debate. Great. Um and having uh, got a preview copy this weekend and having a chance to read it, I can imagine what a personal journey it was to write something that's both uh, strikes that chord at this moment in time nationally about the need for that renewal, but also very intertwined with your own personal journey and leadership um, experiences. So before we get into the the big picture of the country, let, let's talk a little bit about how you came to 
write your own personal story here and and uh, tell that if as you as you would in a short version about um, what you learned from from that experience. Absolutely. And uh, so I just have to tell the audience, Lenny actually uh, was on the New America board when this happened and, and a pillar for me and a friend and a mentor. Uh, so we, we had a, a professional crisis, which I was as CEO, I was really responsible uh, for doing things, but also for not doing things that, that hurt New America's reputation. And going through it, the best advice I got was from another one of our board members, David Bradley, uh, the head of Atlantic Media, who told me, run toward the criticism. And he, David is funny. And he said, you know, imagine you're having a, an argument with your spouse and it's clear to you that you are 98% right and your spouse is at best 2% right. He said, still run toward that 2% actively seek out what the criticism is and then try to learn from it, which is not our national in, our natural inclination in a crisis. You know, we get defensive, we justify ourselves. Uh, but I then called all the board members, including you and, and all of them, and also talked to people in the organization. The, a, we had a consultant and it really was the beginning of a learning journey. Uh, and what I do in the book is to talk about how I took that criticism and looked further back to see were there patterns in other jobs I'd had? Were there what what was this that and how could I fix it? And the the reason I talk about renewal is because I believe renewal is a process of looking backward and forward at the same time. But you have to start with what radical honesty about yourself or your organization or your country. Uh, and so as I tell this way the crisis resolved, I'm also talking about how my leadership style changed, uh, how uh, we came to think about resilience at New America and risk taking. Uh, and ultimately, I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't feel like I'm a stronger, better, more confident person. But that's based on a really wrenching, difficult process. Still, the payoff uh, is that you then have the confidence to rebuild and, and really, frankly, to build something new and better. And, um, you know, having lived that experience through with you, I appreciate the, the challenge of going through it. Um, what was it like? for you personally to write that again and to do that own journey of your own exploration? Painful <laughs> and hard, but part of the, well, the part of the point of the book, again, for anybody who's had a crisis, but particularly leaders, and again, what we have to do as citizens, often in, in meetings with my staff or just more broadly, we talk a lot, for instance, about racial equity and about, you know, white Americans having to do the work of actually learning how to see the world as many of our fellow Americans, African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, people of color see it, right? The not, not the white default that I, anyway, and I think you grew up with. And the process of writing the book was 
doing that work again and, and thinking about it and thinking about what were those lessons. So it was, it was hard, but it was valuable. And in a way it provided a, a kind of closure and again, a, a way of, of sort of looking, looking forward. Uh, I also had many people read the drafts, which I don't normally do. I tend to, I always have a few people, but I tend to be a solitary writer. This time I was writing about my own organization and my own experience. So I made sure that other people who'd been through it with me read it. And of course they had different views. So it was a, a hard process, but a cathartic one in some ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you went through that process and thought about your own leadership journey. Tell us the viewers more explicitly the analogy that you place in terms of what we need to do as a country in terms mm -hmm. of self-reflection and, and that radical honesty and running towards the criticism. What, how does, how does that, what's the link? So the link is looking in the mirror and seeing not just what you want to see, which we're all very good at, uh, but seeing some of the things you don't want to see and forcing yourself to face them with what I call radical honesty. And that really is what I think many of us in this country have to do. And I, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, home of Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence. I could have given you a tour of Monticello because I'd gone to it so many times on a field trip. But today, if you go to Monticello, you have a very different experience. You still do see, you know, Jefferson, the president, Jefferson, the, the inventor, the architect, the gardener, the founder of the University of Virginia. But you see Jefferson, the enslaver, Jefferson, the man who wrote the words, uh, all men are created equal, who cannot live on Monticello without many enslaved women, men, and children uh, who knows that that hypocrisy, but who chooses to ignore it. And of course, who has children with uh, indeed his wife's half sister, uh, again, the product of really a rape or of an enslaved person being subject to uh, a, a, a master. Uh, and now when you go to Monticello, you have to face both. And you really can't look away. You, I mean, not everybody takes it in. But what I'm saying is we as a country have to have the courage to look back and see the bad as well as the good and not to flinch. And ultimately, we need both reckoning and repair, uh, which, again, is something that, that I feel like I went through. Uh, and I think organizations are also uh, going through. So it's not easy. But if we do that right that's the re part of renewal, then we can move forward to the building something new together, to regaining a sense of, I think, confidence and hope as a nation. Great. Um, I, and it may be my reflecting who I am reading into your book, but um, I was struck by and reminded of what your Twitter handle says, which <laughs> is patriot, entrepreneur, mother, mentor, thinker, feminist, CEO. Uh, and then goes on to the professional accomplishments. But you obviously wrote this from, and many points during the book talk about the perspective that you bring as as a woman leader to this question, and um, your own history about um, how you how you lead. Um, what what can we take away from you know your own 
perspective on that written from the view of someone who's been a very successful leader in many different settings. Well, and uh, the patriot part of me, although I say I'm a critical patriot, it's like James Baldwin uh, said, I love my country so much, I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. Uh, but that the patriot in me, uh, also, I just have to uh, compliment you on your shirt. <laughs> the sense of, uh, they're, they're, because this is, this is a way of coming to grips with the reality of the country that I think can inform uh, a, a new patriotism, which I think is, is important. And as a leader, and as a as somebody who not only leads, but I've written on leadership and I've written on network leadership and I've written specifically about leading more horizontally. So from the center of a web rather than the top of a ladder. And yet, as I went through this process, I realized I'm talking the talk, but I'm not walking the talk. I am leading not imperiously, I'm not an imperious person, but fairly distantly. I was often not physically present. I was not taking the time to hear people, to build those relationships that that create enough trust for people to tell you what they think is going wrong. Uh, and again, I knew this intellectually, but I wasn't living it. So, uh, and it, it's a little ironic also because often people think in gender terms that women are much more relational and, uh, you know, we do lead more horizontally. I'd written about that too, but it, it was not when it came down to it. I had to learn how to lead, as I write about in the book, to lead from the center and from the margin at the same time and to learn how on the one hand, you still do, you have to have a boss, people have to make decisions, it can't be, an organization will not run, or at least not in my experience, by consensus, but to lead in a much more collective way, so that actually, to me, it's much more fun. I feel now that I, I have a partner in my president, uh, but I have, we have a leadership group uh, and sort of expanding circles. And that's a kind of collective responsibility for the organization that is much more resilient and frankly, better. Okay. Um, you talk in the book about why you use the term renewal hmm. versus other terms that people talk about when they talk about democracy, like trashing it and starting all over again or rebuilding it or, or reimagining it. Why, why renewal? I say renewal is in between restoration and revolution. So restoration, we just went through a president who said, make make America great again. It was not great and is not great uh, for far too many Americans. So this is not about restoration. I don't actually think we can survive a, a revolution. And although I love really big ideas and I want really big reforms, I want something short uh, of revolution. You're right that there are people who hear renewal, and I quote Trabian Shorters, who's the head of Be Me Community, and he says, you know, people who talk about rewords are fixers, and what you really want are builders who imagine something completely new. Again, I think renewal looks backwards and forwards at the same time. I think it has that newness and the excitement of newness, but it recognizes 
that you're building on a foundation. And this is where the personal is so important again. I, I'm, you know, there's an entire industry bent on selling us our new selves. But in my experience, particularly, you know, over 60, there's a there's a core there. There's a foundation. There's who I am and have been, my personality, my lived experience. You can change, but you can't reinvent yourself completely. So the beauty to me of renewal is that it, again, it doesn't try to pretend the past wasn't there. It insists you face it, but it also says you don't, you're not the prisoner of your past. You really can change. You can do something new. And again, for me, it's the power of doing something together also, uh, that part of my own renewal was recognizing collective power. Okay. Um, as you articulated in the book and as we lived together, you also, during this moment, uh, thought a fair amount, and, and I always think of you as a big idea person, so don't let anybody tell you you're not, but um, <laughs> the, your own institutional leadership role at New America about what the vision and aspirations of the organization were. Um, how did you think about that, and what did you learn as you went through that own process as it relates to uh, to renewal of of the opportunity that is America? Well, the very I the very mission of New America uh, when I came in was around American renewal, and I would talk about American renewal, and I would talk about renovation. That it's the way so many downtowns across the United States are taking old buildings and tearing down the dangerous and ugly parts of them, and and then giving them you know a new uh, either a new in, uh, interior or new walls and sort of, but renovating. And the, it really was my colleagues at New America who said, you know, that's not good enough. And renewing that way, again, isn't facing the, the full extent to which America has not been good. Uh, and so we moved to renewing the promise of America, which I think is, is again, an idea that it makes much more sense that the, the United States is built on a promise, right? That is Martin Luther King's great uh, uh, phrase in the I Have a Dream speech, that the Declaration of Independence is a promissory note that all men, all humans are created equal, uh, but one that, that, you know, that check has never been cashed uh, and we, we have to strive for it. So as we went through this uh, as an organization, we're an organization absolutely committed to a new America and particularly the America we're becoming, which will be an America without a white majority. It's an, what I call a plurality nation. And I don't say majority minority because I don't think everybody being a minority is a particularly hopeful vision. We, we will be a plurality nation. That nation will be very different and we need the policies, the ideas, the infrastructure, the politics for that nation but again, to get there, we have to take a really realistic look at what's gone wrong and where we are today. No, it's it's not easy personally or institutionally, let alone nationally, to take that honest reflection and run into the criticism. How are we doing on that as a country? We're... In some ways, 
we're doing very well. Again, I grew up in the South. I the idea that anybody would have challenged a statute of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson, I mean, they were everywhere. And, and that if they had been challenged, there would have been a response and a response by white Americans uh, and including people like Mitch Landrew, right? The mayor, uh, the former mayor of New Orleans who has a deep Southern history, but who says as a white Southerner, uh, that it is time to actually face up to the history, the, the reality of the Civil War, the extent to which it is to, about slavery, and beyond, before that, the 1619 Project. If you look at what, what the bestsellers are, I mean, again, Clint Smith's book, How the Word is Passed, that is, it is a book that goes through the South and says, look, don't look away. You know, don't see a plantation as a place to have a wedding. See it as a site of crimes against humanity. So in many ways, I think we we are doing exactly what we do need to do. But at the same time, of course, there's unbelievable resistance and a sense of fear and loss that is so easily manipulated into hatred hatred of the other, whether that is the domestic other, somebody who has a different color skin than you do, a uh, different religion, a different culture, or of course, hatred of, of immigrants. Uh, so the other out there. That to me is not surprising because this demographic change is so enormous. There is no other democracy, at least modern democracy, who's that's ever gone through this. Uh, where you've taken a, a majority, an entrenched majority group and said, nope, you are no longer going to be the, the majority. We're going to be a plurality nation. The, the part we need, the part we're missing is that positive vision of what we could accomplish together. So we are, we are fighting over our history. And to, I think that's inevitable and really ultimately positive. And we have to tell the story of all Americans. That doesn't mean you erase white history. That just, that's a both and, right? You, you revise a lot of it, but it's, there's still a lot of good there too. Uh, and you add all those other strands of all the other Americans. But then there has to be a vision of what we can achieve together because otherwise we are, we're mired in the present and mired in the fear and mired in the, in the, the sense that we're we're just hopelessly divided. Uh, I'm not suggesting you just wave a wand and get there, but I do think if we could start looking at what we could achieve positively, it would be easier. Um, you have a unique or at least a privileged position to have a window on what's going on around America and the role that you play at your organization. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be in your board discussions and listening to what's what you and your team are doing around the country and then hear what fellow board members like Jim Fallows and his wife, Deb, are writing on their own journeys around, literal journeys around the country, or what uh, David Brooks is writing from a different lens on trying to, to weave together more commonality in the country. But, you know, it's pretty easy if you're just looking at cable TV or let alone talk radio or a recall election in California to feel like uh, everyone's so divided, everything's falling apart. Um, wh what are you seeing that gives you optimism that we can actually do the look back and renew 
in the way that's going to lead to an outcome that's something other than that division and sense that there's two Americas and they're never going to come together. Where, where are you seeing optimism and hope as you're as you're out there? I do see it much more at the local level. And I know, Lenny, you've seen that, too, when you were in the California government uh, and looking at many of the smaller communities uh, that pull together. And honestly, even right now, with Ida and Hurricane Ida and Afghanistan, you see people coming together to do what they can do. I, I actually got an email this morning um, from my son's piano teacher who had her entire studio wiped out by flooding in Princeton, New Jersey because of Ida. Her And she is a refugee from Sarajevo 20 years ago. So this was really something. And the community pulled together and there was a GoFundMe and two people offered her pianos. And she wrote me this morning, she said, you know, I, it's restored my faith in humanity. Uh, and I see this similarly with people pulling together to figure out how they can help Afghans who did get out, many who are still working really hard to get Afghans out. Many of those are veterans who may have very different political views, but they have a common sense that it, we cannot leave these folks behind, that this is, America stands for something bigger. So I, I really, I, I feel, I often just try to disregard the news uh, because obviously in my job, I need to know what's going on, but it's a 24 hour cycle that magnifies what will attract attention, which sadly is division, as we know, like social media, if you're, if you're really vicious, you'll get retweeted far more than you will if you have a nuanced view. There, there are lots of ways that, uh, right now that, that, that what divides us is being amplified. But I see things that unite us. And the other thing I see, and I just, I'm so proud of it. I've just been watching the U.S. Open and I look at all those African-American tennis players, right? For the first time ever, you are watching matches between two African-American women, two African-American men. That was unthinkable when I was growing up. Arthur Ashe, you know, in the 70s was the great pioneer. He was from Richmond. And, and, but look at that. The Williams sisters, as hard as it was for them, have suddenly ignited this whole new generation and look at the talent, right? That's only one example. But as I look around the diversity of the country, what gives me hope is seeing this extraordinary talent that we have never tapped uh, as, as a white majority country with deep, deep systemic racism and injustice. We have not been able to reap the, the harvest of our extraordinary diversity. And again, I don't think it's going to be easy, but I see so many signs of real progress from, from the America I grew up in, even as I see more division politically, that I, I really have a, that, that, that makes me proud looking forward. Now, you, you um, are frequently in the media yourself, and you know, America was... Uh, founded and has significant leadership people who are journalists and are writing about what's going on in the country. Um, what role do you see the media and journalists playing as we try and engage in the national conversation that you're describing? Are there places where it can really occur when it feels like you're on the, on TV, it's the same thing. The more obnoxious you are to the person you're talking to, the more 
you know, that clip goes viral. Yes. Yes. And as much as I love some of the shows, I'm not sure on net cable news has been a good thing <laughs> for, for the society. Um, although, again, you know, our kids get their news not from any one source. So even there, it, it we're, we're hearing many more voices. But I think journalists, again, we need to go local. And here again, you, you've played a role right in Half Moon Bay, saving your local newspaper. But if we, if you think about all the newspapers that have gone under uh, over my lifetime, and now you imagine, say, look at 2026, the 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. One of the things I imagine is that the organization Report for America or any organizations that are supporting local news really pour funds into local communities so that young journalists can tell the full story of their community for 2026. They would start in most cases with whose land it was, right? Who, which uh, indigenous Americans, Native Americans, whose land was it? Who built their town? Uh, often it will be in, uh, enslaved laborers. Uh, so, and the, but then also, you know, how do, what are the town's great moments? What are the town's traumas? That's a, a way of thinking about kind of historical journalism, but with a present eye. These aren't going to be historians, although they could certainly work with uh, elders, local historians, uh, in a way that I think is helps us build a foundation for much more local news, because we have the ability now to do that that research and to have that news, but we don't have the infrastructure for it. And yet, I, th I think it's going to be essential and we can the good thing is we can have many more people participating in telling those stories than the traditional you know you, you climbed up to a few small really big newspapers that's really interesting so uh, to reinforce i've been really encouraged by my own experience in half moon bay i see it at cal matters and what report for america and others are doing of uh, capturing the the student journalists and those that are just entering the profession and having them do that kind of on the ground reporting in across the country. It's a very different lens than sitting in a newsroom in a big newspaper in New York City or Washington. And it produces really different, different voices and uh, much more reflective of the real America. So um, now you, you had mentioned in passing, and I want to talk, talk a little bit more about this because you talk about it frequently in the book that uh, it's easy to forget that we are coming up soon on a big anniversary for the country in five years. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit about what you think that should, could look like and where are we in the exploration of what America is at 250 years? Hmm. Well, I will start by saying I was 18 in 1976 and my first job out of high school was manning a bicentennial booth, or I should say staffing a bicentennial booth at the University of Virginia. And again, you can imagine that the bicentennial was a very big deal in Charlottesville because this is the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We often would say the nation's birthday or the founding of the nation. That's not really right. Uh, the, depending how you define the nation, the nation's been around 
before that, uh, and uh, it, 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 what it was was the moment we declared independence from Great Britain. So as a former international lawyer, it was the moment we said we are a nation among nations uh, under international law. It was in, in 1976, it was a moment pretty much of triumphalism. I mean, it was after Watergate and the Vietnam War, but they had started planning it in 1966. Congress set up a whole commission in 1966. There, were, there was a fleet of tall ships that sailed across the ocean and into the New York Harbor and then the Boston Harbor. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip came to visit. There were, there were exhibits and fireworks, but what there wasn't was a lot of self-reflection. And 50 years on, in many ways, the country is unrecognizable. And demographically, again, it has changed profoundly in technology. Can you imagine 1976, pre-cell phone, as far as my kids are concerned, that is truly the dark ages. Uh, but so this time around, it can't just be a celebration. And indeed, many folks will say, wait a minute, if, if, if you read Frederick Douglass's great, great speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? He says, it's your day of independence, but it is a, it is a day of slavery for me. Uh, and so, and of course, Native Americans uh, and descendants will see it differently. So it should be a time of reflection, of asking who are we? And indeed, I'm part of a project called Us at 250. So US at 250, Us at 250. Who are we? But equally importantly, who are we going to be for the next 250 years, assuming the planet lasts that long? And that's part of what we have to talk about. Uh, and so I see it as a, as a catalyst. Uh, between now and then, what can we achieve uh, in various ways? How can we use it as a galvanizing date? Uh, but also... How, what do we need to do to then put in place the kinds of, of discussions and conversations and actions that will set us on a course for the next 25, 50, 250 years? It, uh, it's hard to believe you and I are about the same age, but that that was 50 years ago. I know. <laughs> or five years ago. But my, my memory of that time um, was that there was one, a... Uh, thirst in the United States to feel good about themselves again, post-Watergate and post-Vietnam. But my memories of the bicentennial were, I, I literally saw the celebration at Disneyland. And that's a little bit of what felt like sort of a cartoon version of 200 years of triumphant patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are, are we, are, are we going to have something like that again in, uh, in five years or what, how is this going to be different? Well, there is an official commission, and there are, of course, museums that are and national parks that are already thinking about it. It would be a tremendous missed opportunity if that is all that it is. And the, what, the opportunity we have right now is for as many of us as possible to think about what we want to make it. So, you know, every town, as I said, can have a project to tell its history. 
uh, every to every school can think about, you know, what is it that we're going to use this moment for and how are we going to engage not just the classes in 2026, but now looking up to it and looking back, look back at 1976, look back at 1926, look back uh, at 1876, right? These are the, these moments so that you can, you can look at the nation. For me, the opportunity is to take a radically honest look at our history, but equally to think about what kind of changes we can make. And I'll give you one, again, this is something you and I both care deeply about. We need to fix our democracy. And we've we've made really big changes before. We've, we've elect, we, 100 years ago, we moved from electing senators by state legislatures to direct elections. And we moved from conventions to primaries. And now some of us have moved from primaries back to conventions. But we there's nothing in the constitution that says you have to elect people two parties only first past the post. We can have ranked choice voting as you do in San Francisco. Now we have in New York, we have in Alaska, we have in Maine, where there's much more room for different people to express their views. If you have a third party, it doesn't have to be a spoiler. Imagine if we said we want to have 26 states with ranked choice voting by 2026. Or maybe that's too big. You want to say 15, but something big, because that is the way I deeply believe with multi-party democracy and a far more diverse electorate that we can actually be represented. And you can take that in education, in the environment, whatever your area is, and think about a big goal for 2026 and think about critically, who am I going to partner with to achieve that goal? So there's also an opportunity for Jim, Jim Fallows and I often talk about a flotilla, right? We're all there with our boats. Let's sail toward the same goal. Let's have different, you know, different sub goals and maybe different routes, but let's take this opportunity to do something positive. Great. So a reminder to our viewers that we're speaking at the Commonwealth Club with Anne-Marie Slaughter, the author of the book Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work and Politics. And we're looking forward to getting to your questions here in the next while here, as many of them are coming in. Um, but before we do that, um, as we're thinking about 2026, um, I was, uh, as I read your book, really excited about your last chapter and the, sort of your own view about a telling of 2026 that could happen. Um, you just talked about one element of it around renewing democracy. Um, what are, you know, everyone needs their own personal reflection of what it could be like in 2026, but you wrote that and you thought about that a lot, obviously. So what, what, how did you come to that and, and tell a little bit more about, you know, in the big idea, aspirational Anne-Marie Slaughter, what are you thinking about we should be uh, aspiring to in 2026? Well, thanks for that question. And the, the, the conclusion is called the CODA uh, and the, the book is really inspired by Langston Hughes' great poem, Let America Be America Again. Again, it's a deeply patriotic poem and a deeply critical poem at the same time. And he says, let America be America again, the country that has never been yet, yet must be. And that's the frame for me for 2026. I'm, I'm, I'm being very honest about what we haven't been that yet, but what could we be? 
and I invite everyone to have their own vision of what 2026 could be. But some of the things I imagined um, that I talk about in that chapter, Barack Obama gave the elegy for John Lewis, and he said, John Lewis was a founder. And I thought, imagine if former President George W. Bush and Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, came together in a kind of national commission, it could be appointed by the government or by their two foundations, to identify another group of founders in addition to those who, who we call our founding fathers who signed the Declaration of Independence. There are many. I definitely think, you know, Martin, I mean, John Lewis was, Martin Luther King was. There's some, there's some names that would jump to all of our lips. But imagine if we had a really representative commission to say, going forward, we want to recognize these people as the founders of our country as well. I mean, none of it's official. Right? <laughs> it's, all, it's all who we, we choose. Uh, I imagine a reconciliation, a truth and reconciliation commission uh, that would really study what can be done and what has been done uh, in many other countries. But I also imagine an American Frontiers uh, Commission that would, would focus on what are the really big things we can do as a country that we should prepare now and launch uh, in 2026. Again, looking backward uh, and forward uh, at the same time. And it, more in celebration, I imagine instead of the tall ships of 1976, Imagine a, sh a fleet of ships from every port uh, that enslaved men and women and children uh, were shipped from. And imagine those ships going to the ports where, the, where those people uh, were disembarked and sold uh, as slaves. What that would be and what that would be for those towns and how they would think about it. Um, ships coming from all the immigrant ports Right? We are an immigrant country. Uh, not all of us, although even Native Americans probably came over the land bridge from Alaska. But thinking about, so ways, again, of, of celebrating or memorializing, but also uh, reflecting uh, with, a, with the idea that this is what we do, this is part of who we are, and this is the foundation for who we will be uh, as a great country. So I'm going to start weaving in some of the questions that we're getting as well, Emery. But, um, you know, our mutual friend uh, and occasional collaborator, Peter Sims, um, yes. has an optimistic view that we may be on the verge of a new renaissance hmm. coming through the pandemic uh, as, you know, in the coming through the dark ages, um, but that it needs to be in part sparked by artists and hmm. creators and those in the communities. And, and are we really have any chance of engaging the country in the way you're aspiring or are we uh, really lost in being able to have real real conversations and inspiring artists and others who uh, can keep think creatively about what that future is i do think we can invite artists and indeed the mellon foundation already is they have a project uh, on reimagining monuments and if you think about Brian Stevens' work and the Peace and Justice Memorial, that is an extraordinary artistic expression that it's hard to, given, given what it's, 
consecrating and and remembering. Um, it's hard to think about it as ennobling, and yet the art of it sort of gives you a, a, a profound sense of tragedy, but also transcendence uh, that this this could be. And, and I think there are many ways artists can work. I, I think about things like the AIDS quilt and what would it look like if every county, you know, sense or every community, then they're not that many, actually, when you look at it, it's like 2000, the number of towns and communities are not that many, you know, to, to bring something to the national mall, uh, to have a local, a statewide, a national, national artistic expression, uh, you know, I can imagine, like, what would your flag be? I'm not suggesting that we're going to change the American flag, but I think asking people what poems they'd want, what anthems they'd want, what flags. let We are a country where so many people do not feel that they participate, and yet they are Americans. And the, again, our great strength is that is that diversity. So finding a way to invite artists in. And we are working, we, I'm part of a project called Us at 250. There's a website, US at 250. Uh, and I invite everybody listening to, to go on, but it, it will only work if we're inviting others in. It cannot be, you know, New America is not going to do this. Commonwealth Club is not going to do this. It's got to be a participatory process where people feel like I've got something to contribute and this is my anniversary too. Okay. Um, question that was asked around a, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll not try and interpret it, just ask it, but is it a lost cause trying to engage with people who are ignorant, whether it's about the 2020 or anti-vax or whatever it is, is it possible to engage with that population? I think it is. I will refer you to a book I didn't write, but just finished reading and I think is terrific, which is Adam Grant's Think Again. And the whole book is about how you get people to think again. I also recommend it for anyone who has entrenched arguments with their spouse or other family members. I finished it and handed it to my husband. Uh, but it, he talks about, to give you one example, um, there's, there's somebody in Toronto called the Vaccine Whisperer, who is somebody who convinces people to take the vaccine. And it isn't not surprisingly, by disrespecting them or telling them they're dumb or that they're endangering others. It really is active listening, uh, listening in a way that that tries to hear what is bothering that person and that sends a message of respect. You know, if you're going to persuade someone, you're not going to do it unless you're willing to be persuaded. It's one of the first lessons. You, know, you have to have an open enough mind to hear somebody else and say, you know, I hadn't thought of that. For instance, many people really did feel that the vaccine hadn't been properly tested. And that's a legitimate concern. In my view, it, the, the rewards outweigh the risks, but don't pretend there weren't risks and there were risks to different people. So I, I do think there are ways to engage one another. I think we also have to remember that we're not just red and blue. That's again part of what the media environment has done. It's made our political identity the most salient part uh, of who we are, as opposed to I'm a mother, you're a father, I'm a sister, you're a brother, you volunteer, I love birding. Just, you know, what happened to hobbies? What happened to, you know, that this ability to come together? Not, I don't believe in 
any kind of perfect harmony. This has always been a country of a great deal of debate and discord, but not hatred, which is what you 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 see so often or you feel so often now. Okay. There are a few questions that came in more from your uh, policy leadership role. Um, and one of them was, what do you think about the the proposals for the $3.5 trillion package that are being debated around Congress today? Is there anything particularly that you're excited about? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so one of the things I write about in the book and have written about for many years in, in a previous book is a care infrastructure, an entire infrastructure that supports care and connection in the society in the same way that we support competition and commerce. Uh, I deeply believe uh, that we are whole human beings. We're not just rational interest maximizers. We are people who need to connect and belong as much as we need to compete and to win. And a large part of this infrastructure package has paid leave, has a child tax credit, uh, and has $400 billion for home-based and community care, uh, mostly for elders, although also for the disabled. And this is just so important. It's important to our economy. <laughs> We've just seen this. If you, if, if you don't have good care for those you love, you can't work. Uh, but the other thing is that work, caring for people that all of us love, is important work, needs to be paid better, valued more. So I see this package uh, as a down payment on a country that cares and that values care. And we're, Americans are extraordinary at doing this in the micro. You know, Europeans will often say, precisely because we don't rely on the state always, that we come together, we help each other out. But we have not managed to say, as a country, we feel enough solidarity with our fellow Americans who are young, old, disabled, vulnerable in so many different ways uh, to give them the wherewithal uh, to, to, to be cared for. Great. Well, look forward to having more of that conversation on a, the future of the care economy. Um, another question, a policy question, um, uh, how do we close the large gap in entrepreneurial resources, particularly for historically excluded populations? Mm. That is such a great question, and it it goes directly uh, to the to what we were just talking about. I have a chapter on risk, and the point of the chapter is to say that if you want people to take more risks, and this innovation, entrepreneurship, doing something new, which is often scary and requires you to take risks, if you want people to take more risks, you have to give them more security. It sounds like a paradox, but if you just think about it, even for a minute, it is so clearly true. I mean, you're sitting there in San Francisco. The kids who go out to found startups in Silicon Valley are kids who drop out of college often. So to begin with, they're already in college. And they're kids who have enough wherewithal to have a friends and family round of investment in their startup, which also tells you their friends and family may not be hugely wealthy, but they're well enough off to have some extra income. If we want to support the kind of local entrepreneurship that we really need to come back from the pandemic, but also just the world 
we're entering the world of more automation. Yes, the world probably of partly remote work, but we're not all going to sit, you know, in little towns on our screens. And even if we did, then we need entrepreneurship to support, uh, you know, to develop new businesses to support them. We've got to provide people with a foundation. It, it doesn't mean that they don't have to do scary, daring things, but how much of a how how high you're willing to climb depends on how far you think you can fall and if you think that you know taking a risk means possibly losing your house and ending up on the street or not being able to support you know your loved ones you're going to stick uh, to what you're doing and I, this is not just me talking there's a lot of research on risk and this is what backs it up so if I, I'm all for a whole new generation of entrepreneurs, but we need to provide them with enough security so that, yes, they can go up and they can fall, but they're not going to lose their their livelihood or you know their house or their family as a result. No, I thought your chapter on risk was intriguing for that very point that we have done and are a lot more opportunities to lower that individual risk and have some security. The Affordable Care Act clearly did. Yep. Yep. The- care infrastructure that you're describing would help that. But it'd be really intriguing if we had that architecture combined with a collective friends and family support so that everyone could have that opportunity as opposed to those who happen to come from means. Exactly. Um, So this is in the big idea category for you, which you love. Um, Mm -hmm. If you could pick one area, one policy area that you really think America could fix in the next five years leading up to the 250th? What what would you focus on? No question, but rank choice voting. I really, I, we're a democracy. We're a very, we're a pretty dysfunctional one right now, but ultimately all these policies that some of us want and some of us don't, I do not feel like the government actually is channeling the majority of the people. In fact, I'm certain it's not because a majority of people want reasonable gun safety, just to take one example. Uh, The majority of people want something not uh, on abortion that, that is certainly not what's happening in Texas, but maybe not what's happening in the most liberal states either. Um, We are, we cannot express our views in ways that get us that are genuinely represented and then you say well but there are other problems like gerrymandering and and campaign finance absolutely there are but to fix those you need to change who gets elected so ranked choice voting is the one thing if i have to choose just one thing that will help make our politics more moderate more civil more representative and without that the, you know, the gears are broken. It's like we have a democracy, but the steering wheel is not connected uh, to the engine. So that's the one thing uh, that I that I would do. It sounds really wonky, but honestly, most other countries in the world are run on a parliamentary system that is that is what ranked choice voting would bring us closer to. Although we'd still have our president, we'd still have our Congress. It doesn't require any constitutional changes. So. Um... As you said earlier, there are big cities and two states now in the country are moving that direction. So this is one of those coming from the bottom uh, processes. If people want to learn more about that, where should they go? 
uh, go on the website of Fair Vote, uh, and then actually, Lenny, your California site—you um, know—you'll know that better than I do. But Fair Vote is one of the big organizations that pushes it. Okay. Um, so, 250th anniversary will be right after the 2024 election. Uh, are you worried about where we'll be in terms of being able to both celebrate and have a uh, a uh, real conversation in the country, given we will have just come through an election? I am. I'm worried about the state of our politics, as any sane person would be. Uh, I do think it's important that it's it, it, it'll be a midterm election year, but it'll be two years uh, you know, after the 2024 election. Or you're right, actually, the 2024 will be a, be a year uh, this is another reason I think it's so important to do this as much ground up as we can. I would like there to be a celebration in the mall and all of that, but the country is much more than Washington. Uh, and we do have the ability to make change in our in our communities and in our states. I think... 2026 can be a way of restoring some of that agency. Uh, and so, and to say again, um, you know, we've gone through really, really bad times before uh, as, as a nation. And in some ways people feel like this is a kind of cold civil war. I'm not sure. I'm, I think it's, it's that bad. Again, I think it's, it's exaggerated in some ways, but I would like to think that we can have this celebration not divorced from politics because it's part of who we are, but but not dependent on politics either. I should say one of the other things I imagine in 2026, maybe maybe this is far fetched, but I, I I imagine I say the nation's first female president. That was before uh, President Biden said he wanted to run again. I'm not taking any positions, uh, but I would like to see a female president. But I, I imagine changing our national motto from e pluribus unum to plurus et unum. Uh, somebody had to correct me on the Latin because I haven't had Latin since high school. But that means many and one at the same time, not from many one, but many and one. And I'd like to think that we can have, you know, rancorous politics and a still a sense of where we've been and where we're going um, at the same time. Fabulous. Um, we're unfortunately just about at the end of the program, so only have a couple more minutes. But, um, you know, I uh, think it's a very interesting time as you head towards 2026. It wasn't exactly an easy time to have a national conversation celebrating in 1876, or 1976, for that matter. Those were challenging times about the country being uh, torn apart for different reasons. But, um, you know, it's not like we haven't had a history of coming together and figuring out how to renew ourselves. So thank you for challenging us to do that. And I want to ask you um, the last question, which is, um, you have your own coda in the book, which I would encourage everyone to to read. But you know, we're talking to an audience of people who are who are leaders and interested in these topics, um, how do they get involved? What do you think the opportunity for individuals to be part of this critical running towards the criticism and self-reflection as, as, and then aspiring to something in 2026? What should we be doing as individuals? 
Well, obviously, I want to say read the buy the book and read it. Uh, I do, but but it is an invitation uh, at the end, and it says, you know, what is this is my vision? What is yours? And again, it's but it's saying, you know, how are you going to look backward and forward at the same time? So it isn't just a gauzy, oh, imagine what America could be. It's you know, let's look at your own town, your own organization, yourself, however that strikes you, how do you invite as many others to be with you as you can? That can be within your organization, that can be uh, other organizations, but we're not going to do this individually. It really, we all have a role, but there has to be this larger sense of a collective. And then set yourself first place, think about your own vision, but set yourself a big goal. We are doing this at New America. We are uh, engaging in strategic planning, and I am pushing everyone to say, all right, we work on higher education. We work on K through 12. We work on political reform. We work on workforce and apprenticeships. What could we do by 2026? Let's set ourselves a, you know, a big goal. We might fail. You know, yes, that's what risk is. You know, so of course we might fail, but better to to really believe that we can do something big and try, uh, because the country needs it. We really need it. And again, we have so much potential and so much talent. Uh, I am, in the end, optimistic, uh, but only if all of us pitch in and and dare. Fantastic. I love that call to action in a way that's both aspirational, individual, and collective. And uh, thank you for putting that forward. And if people want to learn more about the US at 20 at 250, where do they go? There is a website. It's us at 250.org. We're still, we're, we're, and we invite your comments because we're just getting going. But we have a great group and you can see who's involved on the website. Fantastic. So again, our thanks to uh, my friend Anne-Marie Slaughter, CEO of New America and author of the new book, Renewal from Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work, and Politics. Thank you for joining us this afternoon, Anne-Marie. It's a pleasure, as always, to hear your ideas and both your personal reflections and your views on what we can be doing as a a country. Um, Look forward to the 2026 celebrating where we're accomplishing some of those big aspirations. (laughs) Lenny, thank you. Uh, I wish that I were sitting in Half Moon Bay at your brewery and lifting (laughs) a glass of your excellent ale, but thanks to everybody listening and many thanks to the Commonwealth Club for hosting. Thank you. And again, we all particularly want to thank the audience for watching and those who are participating live. Um, We see flashing across the screen and in uh, the uh, website, the opportunity to buy the book Renewal by Anne-Marie Slaughter virtually and support both the Commonwealth Club and local bookstore. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Clubs in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. Look forward to seeing many of you in person someday soon. I'm Lenny Mendoza. And again, thank you and stay, self, stay safe and healthy. Thank you again. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.